listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast. It's number 86, I don't know why that matters, and I'm joined by Jason Wingrove. How are you, sir? I'm well. 86, what, I don't think that's what that means. Age means... 86, don't you remember? Get smart. Or if you're 86 something, that's like pissing it off get out of here wasn't that because of agent 86 no no i think some no. military thing the military thing i don't okay. know i'll wiki it while i while we talk means some kind of swearing in some kind of foreign language hey yeah this week on the show we'll be talking to uh Stu mashowitz as promised last week um about his experiences shooting with the epic in new zealand with us uh also part of that is dovetailing in with the new term that's been announced at fx phd as well as a new website at fx phd uh, we'll also be covering the news uh, stuff that's been happening, and give you the full goss and rundown on what's happening in the lead-up to NAB, which happens now in T-minus about a week. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes. Yes, because it's this weekend coming. That yes, it officially sort of Monday starts, yes. Well, but it starts on the weekend, right? Like True. the weekend, there are the DOP conferences and stuff. Yeah, there's some good. awesome awesome conferences, actually. So, uh, yes, so all that coming up later. Um, but let's start out, as we always do, uh, with the news. And now, the RC News. Uh, 86 is actually slaying for offing someone or killing someone, apparently. That's like, right. That's just well, good news. That and, and, and that's appropriate to the first piece of news we have. It's attributed uh, to Article 86 of the New York State Liquor Code. No idea what the link is there, but there you go. Soup kitchens were limited to 85 patrons at a time, so number 86 uh, wouldn't anyway, receive any food. Anyway, getting back to the bad news uh, that we have to lead off with. I'm, the trying to avoid, I'm trying to avoid talking about it, actually, I guess. I'll talk about it if you okay, don't want to. Sorry? I'll talk about it if you don't want So, most of you probably would have heard, uh, the uh, plan was to have epic exodus shipping before NAB, and in fact, it now looks like there'll be a minor few that'll get out the door before an AB, uh, but the rest will be pushed back due to the Japan effect. And uh, that uh, basically means that the FAXs are currently slated to be pretty much delivered by the end of September, um, but it'll be a bit back-end weighted. In other words, uh, April and May won't have a lot of stuff shipping, but there'll be a few, and then uh, most of it will get shipping in June, July, August, and September. Um, and that's a bit of a blow to people that have been waiting around for Xs. Um, uh, that does... yeah come with a minor uh, glass half, well, not even half full, but partially full, in that there are more M's going out the door. So um, they've increased the M campaign. Mm, yeah, interesting. They haven't increased the M campaign to fully compensate for the X's. Um, yeah. And there, there are still going to be uh, this uh, sort of partial fulfilment of orders on M. So, for example, if you get an M, you don't get, you know, all the bits and pieces because... Um, they still are, you know, sort of scarce on stuff. Yeah. Because obviously if they had no problem fulfilling M's, then they'd probably have a better shot at fulfilling X's. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, obviously there must be some significant, I must, must be significant differences between construction-wise between M's and X's because I guess obviously they're both now obviously being built uh, in the US. Uh, but if they've got the bits to build X to M but not build X is uh, yeah. I guess there must be and one of the things I'd actually like to follow up with and I will do at NAB is I really would like to talk to uh, maybe Ted about the situation for all the people that are interested in stuff that isn't M's and X's because I know there are quite a few people that are interested in bomb EVFs yep. and people that are interested in um, SSDs for uh, red ones yeah, and just absolutely. SSDs in general yep. and there was an announcement that uh, you'll be able to trade in your old hard drives for half the price no, for half the value off 
against a 256 SSD. Right. Okay, I'm not sure which SSDs they I were. I believe it was the 256 SSD. And, and possibly um, or the side module, I guess, for our well, No, I uh, didn't hear that. No, I actually just the media. heard against the against a 256 yep. SSD. Now, I, it may be more generous than that. That's pretty generous. I mean, very few people give you trade-ins on disk drives. Yeah. But... Um, as I remember reading it, that's that's the details. Well, that would be uh, you know a reasonable sort of part payback, I guess, because you know there's not they're obviously not making any more drives. You can't really buy them, as far as I understand. And uh, you know they're obviously getting, uh, as we've mentioned in the show, they're getting long in the tooth. And uh, clearly now we want if the new media's around and there's a, a, an option for that, would be great too. I mean, I, I absolutely love to. the I SSDs, and I would I I can't justify at a business level swapping out my CF card for an SSD on the uh, Red One. Mm. Now that being said, I guess if I didn't have spare disk drives, maybe I'd be in a different position. Uh, but if you think about the weight and how much you sort of ranted about your... your no, no, I your would totally l- like it. You came l- up to me and said, Mike, here's your birthday present. By the way, my birthday's coming up. Um, but if you gave me my birthday present and said, here's an SSD module with some SSD cards, yeah. you know, I'd uh, sing and dance uh, and embarrassingly so. But after that, I'm just saying that I wouldn't sort of put money on the table right now because I have quite a lot of things I'd like to get for the Epic. And... Yeah thousands of dollars invested in the red one even though we'll use the red one yeah i just i mean it's hard i just don't see the business model for me personally quite no as much. sure for people that are running red ones and are going to have epics then it kind of makes sense because you'll just have the one media system across the across both machines uh, you'll be able to, if you're running both both things or you're keeping your red one as as your backup or your bcam then you can have them both running ssds and have all the one absolutely rushes and, and in a world where money is no object that's exactly what i would do you know but sure. it's just like that thing about when a new mac comes out and you say to yourself i'd really like this new mac and then you say to yourself well really it's good yes, but I, I can't really justify getting a new one every single time i'll yeah. wait till the one after this as you say there's the money is sort of i'm being put aside to uh, for bits and pieces for uh, bits and pieces uh, for like the, the new for the new DSMC machine. quick release platform. I love this or, little thing. I mean, so at the moment, obviously, what's slowly creeping into the store? Obviously, we've seen pictures of it, but what's slowly creeping into the red store is uh, all the bits and pieces for the uh, not just, I guess, to work with the Epic, but also a lot of them are actually designed to work with both. Uh, I think one of the coolest ones, and one I've been investigating most, I guess, is the quick release, uh, the quick release system, which is really nice. It works beautifully well. Uh, if anyone's ever sort of used uh, like the sort of O'Connor system or any kind of snap-in system, versus pulling a pin and sliding something off a slide plate, which is fiddly. If you can just drop the camera straight onto the top, uh, it just makes it so much nicer, and particularly when you've got nice quick, uh, nice sort of clunk and click kind of um, that sort of. I guess that kind of uh, security of hearing that uh, positive lock going on, uh, it's uh, its a really gorgeous thing. Now, so I've been sort of digging around with this quick release plate because partly because it's a little bit confusing as to what bits you get and how it all works. So at the risk of boring potential non-Epic customers, I'm just going to rant, go on for a little moment here. So there's the quick release platform pack, which at the, on Facebook looks a little bit expensive, but when you break it down, it's actually pretty good considering this thing is actually really quite a complicated and beautifully made sort of Swiss, Swiss watch of a piece of gear. So there's basically what it is. They've got a quick release. There's two parts to it. Obviously, there's the quick release, the, the, the bottom part, I guess, which would go to your tripod, and then there's the uh, top plate, which would uh, attach to the bottom of your Epic. Uh, now, so there's two versions of this uh, quick release pack. There's one that fits with a slide plate, 
and one that is basically a bolt-on version. So the slide plate version essentially comes in, say, this platform pack where you have a, uh, I guess, like a dovetail plate that you would attach to. If your tripod, say, doesn't have much uh, sliding room left to, uh, front to back for balancing, you'd probably go with this one. And uh, you essentially the quick-release um, not only has... Uh, obviously the the locking lever to connect to the camera but has a locking lever that then connects to a slide plate so once the camera's on the plate you then got fore aft uh, control to get balance and then what happens to on front on the front and back of that plate you attach these um universal mounts 19 mil and i'm hoping there's going to be a 15 mil because have you and i as you and i mike have talked um as soon as you have this camera, you really want to then start downscaling everything. Apart. If, as long as you're not going to bolt, you know, massive, you know, on you know, twenty to one huge zooms on this thing. Fifteen mil rods or even lightweight fifteen mil setup is is the go for this camera. The last thing you want to do is start bolting stuff onto it. So, um, that's Jason's torpedo of truth. I want to <laughs> absolutely. Have, I want to have light, 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 light rods. Yeah. So if you've got a, a camera, a tripod, say that's already got a bit of a slide plate built into it, then what you've got is the bolt-on version of this, which is basically you'd need the top plate for the camera and then this bottom thing and you bolt that straight to the snap plate of your tripod and keep it there. Uh, now, um, obviously that doesn't then fit with any sort of further dovetail, dovetail plates, but I do not have a price for that yet, but there is two versions of that. Uh, moving on to other stuff, uh, the clutch. Well, the clutch is the one that most people that I've been talking to uh, on Twitter and stuff like yeah. because you seem to get a lot of stuff uh, you in do. the one kind of pack. Indeed, particularly but, you when know, you look at how much they charge price, for the right. handles alone, which is, you know, 700 bucks. So the clutch is what's interesting about it is uh, it's not just, you know, like a shoulder mount system, but obviously it has these kind of front and like a chest pad and a back pad so almost not that you really would but you can take a lot of weight off the handles because it's sort of supported uh, on the front and back of your upper body a lot of sort of stuff you've se- I've seen in the past where you have pads or pods that go to your waist is a complete joke because as soon as you start moving around you're going to start bending. Im- impacting on your framing and it's hard to bend over so this really is more uh, it's putting a bit more of the weight on the upper part of your body, so you're still free to move around a little bit. Uh, again, the proof's going to be... In, I'm sure the guys have... You know, everyone's had a play with this, says it's fantastic. I'd love to try it in, in person because I've never really seen a shoulder mount like this that sort of transfers the weight that way. It looks really, really... Uh, looks gorgeous. So that's 4,900, uh, and you get a bit of a top handle, sliding top handle, um, and obviously all the front handles and rods and the shoulder shoulder mount. And I think at the back there's like kind of a mounting plate if you want to put uh, V-locks or whatever on the back as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of nice engineering there. And it's, uh, you know, actually when you think about it, for the cost, that's pretty good. Um, then you can just have the front handle assembly, which is essentially just uh, 19mm uh, rods uh, and then, you know, basically two front, left left and right sort of uh, grips, I guess. Um, that's 1775 bucks. Obviously, that is also hybrid. That will work on uh, Red One as well. So all these things are in the store marked as limited availability. Yeah. But we hopefully will see them at NAB. Yes, indeed. Uh, my credit but, card but it, is poised but it in adv- in well in advance of whatever I put on it. But it isn't just the Red Store that you can spend your money at, you Jason. Can, well, you can yes, waste at the moment, money you can at wait. all sorts of places. What I'm, I guess, on, also on the list to go visit is Element Technica. They've got this little thing which is kind of hidden away in their kind of skunk works page 
called, and this would apply to DSLR or anything. I'd l- I'm hoping and wishing this is actually going to work beautifully, and I'm sure mad if it didn't uh, work beautifully with uh, the Epic. Is this little Micron slide plate, and you can actually see it on the shot in the show notes and at uh, Element Technica's uh, website. If you go to their Skunkworks uh, page. It shows it next to their regular red or kind of this normal Ari size slide plate. And it is a gorgeous little, basically just a little scaled down version of a... Uh, it looks really but cute. Is it looks epic size. And yeah, this is lightweight 15 mil. Yeah, which but I, is this going to adjust for the fact that the epic is out in terms of height for the offset to the rods? I think you're probably going to still need... Because I have a plate, like a square plate, that's the size of the footprint of the Epic that I bought from Element Technica that screws on the bottom that basically just gives me an extra, whatever it is, a centimetre, like maybe 9 mil. It may not. See, the the problem with lightweight 15, and actually I think what this probably won't... Actually, now I think about it, this will not work properly well with uh, lightweight 15 with the epic actually this is probably more a dslr piece of kit because the uh lens center i guess from if you put a matte box on lightweight 15 the distance from the rods to the center of say a matte box is a lot shorter than the distance say from uh, 15 mil like studio rods on 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 an epic so i i do know that um, Brooke Willard is designing um, I think it's mm. brookwillard.com if you go to his blog I, I, I was has, hoping you actually wouldn't say that I'm jumping so that I could oh okay sorry no, I, I, no I just want to get my order in before I, do, I definitely want to get my order in too Brooke is uh, designing this uh, I'll put it in the show notes note to self um, note to self order before uh, this gets published <laughs> well he's still it's still it's still working but this stuff is going to be out pretty quickly but he's done a really nice um, uh, I guess like a cage system and top and bottom plates with little with side plates and then 15 mil rod mount lightweight rod mounts at the front and those rod mounts are actually raised up higher so they're actually sitting in front of almost to left and right of where the fan is on the front of the epic so it's actually higher so I think it's correcting for that that height um, difference so if you have got lightweight you know like genus matte box or whatever that's going to go correct with the lens center. So that is definitely. Well, I mean, the bottom line is. However, bottom line is when we next do this podcast, which will be live from Vegas. Yes. You can come back and actually say, my, I would like the Jason (laughs) signature edition uh, recommendation (laughs) of Epic Epic Rises because this is all getting a bit convoluted. I think it is. I think it is definitely. I mean, I guess I'm sort of you know, you know, um, flushed with uh, um, energy over this. Because uh, I think that there's so much to do on this, and having you know, I have, I have like an you, epic. Mike. I have an epic, and I want just the. So, what do I need to buy? Answer to this <laughs> yeah, question. Right. No, I don't want to know any more no, options. Exactly, exactly. Well, well, I'll shut up now, and we'll solve that. We'll solve that on the next one, um, right. hopefully. Because as you and I know, with working with the red one and all the bits and pieces that are outboard, everything's inboard on the Epic and you want to keep it that way. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think there's definitely solutions beyond 19 uh, mil huge stuff that weighs more than the camera itself. <laughs> okay, shutting okay, up, so moving now, on. <laughs> so now there's about four options coming out at NAB for recording video in a really small, lightweight uh, kind of way. And yeah. you've got a new one we haven't discussed before, right? No, we haven't discussed this one. And partly because I sort of saw... I First of all, I foolishly just saw the price point and went, meh, okay, lots of other things are doing this the same for less money. Uh, but Conversion Design, who make the Nano, Nano Flash, uh, bringing out uh, something obviously we will visit and get a little bit more in-depth at NAB, is the new Gemini 444. Now, it's called a Gemini, 
because uh, of this sort of twin recording sort of system. That's, I guess, obviously what sets it apart from Nano Flash, from Ninja, and a few of the other things that are coming out. Uh, you don't mean Ninja, you mean uh, Samurai. Ninja, well, Ninja and Samurai. Well, but isn't this got... Sorry, we're jumping ahead, but isn't this what we're talking about, this little cigarette packet video yep. recorder yep. taking in HD SDI? Yes, I guess I'm just saying what separates this from stuff like little smaller stuff like the Ninja is this, this is going to be able to record dual recording. Okay, but there's but okay, so in this area of cigarette box sized recorders, yep. there seems to be two, well, now yeah, two things. Can you record two streams? Mm. And can you record HDMI or HD SDI? And and the HD SDI version of the Ninja is the Samurai. Yes. And this records HD SDI, right? Yes. In and fact, the Samurai costs like half as much again as the Ninja. Yeah. So Ninja's about uh, just about a grand under yeah, a little and bit it's under like a 1500 grand. Yeah, fifteen hundred for the Samurai. Yeah, fifteen hundred so for the this? Samurai. So this is the uh, conversion design Gemini. No, no, but, but what's it price was? Uh, about six thousand, maybe a little uh, more over six thousand. But it's the, two streams. That's that's the single stream version, as far as I understand. There is a, a price TBA upgrade to do the uh, dual stream system. Now, like the Ninja, this uses um, well the Ninja. You can have uh, S- uh, hard drive or SSDs, but this uh, uses uh, like a twin SSD system. Obviously, using the twin SSDs, if you're going to do twin streams, it will record to um, uh, to both one, one camera to. But one when you say twin twin streams, we're not talking about four two two and effectively o two two making up four four four. You mean two entire four 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 streams? That's my understanding. Yeah. Yep. Again, this is just a quick heads up. I don't want to dig too deep because, as I say, when we hit NAB, we're going to go and speak to these guys hopefully and uh, get a bit more in depth about it. But as far as I understand, obviously. Well, it's a monitor built in, so it's going to have uh, you know like one to one pixel um, zoom in, obviously. So it's going to have give you a lot of monitor functions as well, uh, and obviously the ability to then um, you know record inboard. So I guess it's a smaller, lighter, cheaper. Well, plus uh, it has two twin slots, stream version two slots to put of one point eight solid state drives in, right? Like hot swappable two fifty six or five twelve. Yep. SSDs in the back, exactly. Yeah. them in and out. And then it has a uh, docking station, I guess. Then take it off, dock it, and it has eSATA out for, uh, obviously, for really quick uh, getting the, the data out of there. The other thing they're doing, now, obviously, stuff like Ninja is pretty much just does ProRes, as far as I understand, Mike. Um, these guys are, d- are working at the moment with um, Avid, Final Cut Pro, Premiere, Vegas, etc., and working on code to create not just, like, sort of quick times basic QuickTime codecs or ProRes, but to do DNX HD, Cineform, and a few other codecs well, as well. this uncompressed 10-bit 444. So just yeah, that's right. Four. You have the option to do the un- un- uncompressed um, 10-bit 444, of course, and then also, obviously, to record straight to your editing, you know, an editing codec. Now, this doesn't have batteries. This actually, what, takes in a, either a power supplier or XLR power, is that right? Uh, yeah, there's XLR and obviously AC, but uh, I'm, again, yet to find out what the other on-camera powering uh, um, systems are. This is, uh, this is not known at this stage to me. Because interestingly, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but ARRI has decided to pick up uh, codecs, because codecs obviously make an even... So if, it, if we're jumping up in stages from Ninja Samurai to the Gemini, yes. we yeah. go up another level. We certainly do. And we get dual recording on the codecs, uh, which is 
uh, as we know, something we've discussed in the past because we've shot yeah. with it, and it's the sort of bee's knees of that. And whereas Codex was obviously an independent product, it's so successful with the Alexa that they're now going to be... Um, you're able to buy, basically, an ARRI Codex box, in other yeah. words, a co-branded ARRI raw uh, box for, the, obviously, the Alexa and the D21. And this kind of makes sense, I guess, because, you know, why would ARRI reinvent the wheel when Codex have done it so beautifully? It mates so beautifully with the camera. It's almost, when you look at the thing, it's like it's come out of the ARRI factory itself. It's built, like, with that sort of mindset in, in mind. It's very uh, clean and, 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 and beautifully machined. Now, you might say looking at the press releases, why would you bother going to the Codex? Why do you need this? But once you hit up the Codex level, not only are you getting dual streams, and that's dual streams, say, coming off ARRI in RAW at 2.5K in real time with very, very high-quality memory, but also you get the entire Codex file system and their file management system. And that that's like now we're, you're buying into a whole ecosystem of uh, professional high-end stuff. Now, Jess, we've got an interview scheduled with the Codex guys as soon as we get to Vegas uh, on the weekend because, uh, you know, watch this space. I, I'm really interested to talk to the Codex guys. Um, and I think what we're seeing here is basically just onboard recording at multiple different price points. And you can pick what you get. Obviously, at a, at a cheaper level, you're not getting an entire um, yeah. sort of subsystem of uh, file management. And at the high end, that's exactly what you want because if you're shooting, you know, a major feature film. Yeah file management is is absolutely everything absolutely i mean and you know codex are you know well obviously why is he staying away from that whole bottom end and you know spending all their energies developing stuff like this could i give you an update on this subject from last week remember you were talking last week about the um ability to record off hdmi out of the FS and... Yes, the FS100. Yeah, and so you were discussing, and I thought it was particularly interesting, that there is an HDMI cable on this camera rig, if you guys mm. remember from last week's episode, that output timecode. And uh, it got me thinking, like, this is something I should know about. This is pretty interesting, because uh, why hasn't HDMI had timecode up until now, and how are they managing to do that without, you know, coming up with HDMI 2 or something? Um, so we did a bit of uh, digging on that, and just to geek out for a second, uh, as I know some of you, some of you enjoy us doing, not all of you. <laughs> okay, so there is um, definitely uh, the ability to output timecode in the information that goes, if you like, the metadata that's going with the HTMI. But here's the, the brief. When we talked about it last week, we said, well, that just sounds like a really good idea. It was almost a bit like too good to be true. Well, it is a little bit too good to be true. This is how it works. The if I connect an HDMI, uh, like a camera up to something, it will know what the thing is I connected up. And the reason it does that is that there is some metadata or header data, if you like, some frames that are um, coming through that give you information. One of them is one that gives you a string, which is the name of the camera, effectively, and the name of the camera being the model number, that kind of stuff. Or the name of the device it's connected to, mm -hmm. be it a PlayStation or yeah. a an, plasma TV. And so that's whatever. standard and read by just about everything. Mm. Um, and there's another very, very rarely used version of that type of thing, which is uh, like a sort of like a manufacturer definable one. Mm -hmm. If you like, it's like a user bit, but it's for the manufacturers, a user section. And that's where Sony is putting in the, uh, the time code. Now, the trouble with doing that is that most people would imagine that everybody makes their own stuff. But in fact, behind the scenes, there's only about two or three people that make the HDMI chips at ASIC level or chip level that 
doing this, and everyone uses the same chips, and they all are relatively equivalent, and they go into all the different devices of different manufacturers. Mm. Those chips are built uh, to be, you know, pretty cost-effective because a lot of this gear is, you know, quite uh, consumer-orientated. So they just don't bother doing anything they don't have to. And almost none of those chips, if any of those chips, actually read this new place that Sony's putting the thing in. So, yes, it's in the spec. Yes, Sony's doing the legal stuff that it should be doing. Yes, it's completely correct. Trouble is, no one's been kind of reading it. So they never built the chips to read it. So even if you're in software wanting to read it, Sony would be putting the data in there, but you wouldn't be able to access anything in the firmware, as it were, of the chip to say, give me this number that's being updated every frame, and I'll read it as time code. There is room to do it in the name field, the one that we've already said that everyone does read. The trouble with that, though, is you would need to sort of basically have some protocol that said, all right, the, this name field, which is incredibly long and much longer than you need to name any product, why don't we just assume that the end of it is the number and let's put a flag bit in there that if you see this flag bit, you won't display the end of it because you'll know it's not the name. And we hope that Sony will go down that route and duplicate that information into that field and then people could actually write code that would access that and then give you a time code. But until they do that, you're really going to need a, a, re, a new iteration of the chips, which means any existing product you have is very unlikely to read this time code, um, which means we're in one of those um, sort of chicken and egg problems, Jace, where Sony's doing it. If other equipment manufacturers jump on and do the same thing, then, of course, they'll revise the chips, next iteration of whatever computers, monitors, or whatever it is that needs to read this. We'll use the new chips and we'll all have time code. If they don't, it'll wither on the vine because only Sony's doing it, no one reads it, so nobody else does it because it doesn't work and it just goes away. So it's really at, like at a, at a kind of a, I don't know, what do you call it, a, a nexus, a junction. It could well, go either way. A couple of points and questions and thoughts. Um, first of all, I as far as I know, this whole protocol is not entirely locked down. It's still being developed with conjunction with the HDMI yeah, you know, which is consortium, why I, I guess. Which is why I'm pushing that Absolutely. they also stick it in the name Absolutely. field. So let's keep talking about this. Um, A, perhaps if they give you the ability to switch that bit off, switch that sort of time code part off and just give you the clean HDMI... Well, no, the case, problem is but it doesn't matter because the thing is, like, imagine that you said to me, I'm going to give you a book... Yeah, and on the second page, I'm going to write some information. And I say, oh, well, I'm doing an electronic version of the book, and we just don't bother reproducing the second page because it was previously always intentionally left blank. So the electronic version of this book just doesn't have that page. And you say, well, that's really annoying because I'm putting now really useful information on page two. And I go, well, I'm sorry, but page two isn't used. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but you can't ask me to use it because it's all the code's written and it's done. Yeah. That's an analogy, but that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah, but if you have the ability in software to be able to... Um, switch off the removal of that second page. So no, 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 that, no, no, but so it's that not that like that. It's like, like, a, like it literally, the, the chip in the receiving end, the yeah. thing that gets the cable, yeah. has no capacity to read page two. Yeah. There's like no hardware, it's not written into the actual chip yes. that it reads page two. So That's you right. can't write some new software that says read page two. Yeah. The chip just doesn't read page two. Yeah, so what I'm saying is you want the ability in the camera to just give me normal HDMI that everything's nothing's going to balk at because I know, obviously, sometimes I'm particularly, um, some cameras will completely just, if you want to plug it into some other HDMI device, it just, might just sort of freak it out. So if you have the ability in the camera to, A, let's, let's, you know, let's go and develop this sort of interesting timecode system, but um, let's share it, and B, you know, give the ability to be able to switch that off so if there's an issue. I mean, but the, I guess the other question is, do, 
if you're going to sort of say plug it into another device like a Ninja or whatever, can't that then record the time code and embed that obviously into the ProRes and you can put real names and everything on that? How important is the time code coming out of the camera with the HDMI stream? How how critical? How 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 big a thing is it for Sony to push this? How big is it that there's time code out of the camera? Mm. Well, if you don't have time code out of the camera, you don't have time code out of the camera. So, I mean, in any product, you can restripe time code. I mean, yeah. you can take any feed, live, whatever you like, and stripe it. But if you obviously have time code on the master data, then that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, I guess my bigger question would be, do we really want to work really, really hard to make HDMI really <laughs> no. professional when the plug itself is kind of naff? But, you know, what, and also I think, What's important with this camera, say the FS100, you know, they've got these two divisions, as I've said before, that with like you've got the pro and, and the F3 kind of is part of the low end of the really pro side of things. Yeah. And the FS100 is really sort of semi pro, it's the high end of semi pro kind of stuff. So we're kind of, again, dragging this camera into areas, you know, it's not necessarily not designed to do, but, you know, we're expecting a bit of it, you know, it's actually throwing in bonus stuff as long as it doesn't screw up the system. I guess it's um, I don't know. This is this is a essentially like a semi-pro kind of camera. And I think that Sony is doing exactly what it should do, which is trying to get time code into HDMI. Even though HDMI is a bit fundamentally flawed as a plug, like physically, like the physically, it's out. a complete pain in the bum. Um, but they keep making plugs like this. Which yeah, is but maybe someone can come up with a rubber band that holds it in. And then the second thing I'll say is that uh, it's just that. Unless people want this sort of stuff, um, it won't happen. And it yeah. can happen. It just needs a bit of a push because these things are never as simple as they seem. Like sometimes when you hear about these things, you go, well, well great, that's easy. It's time yeah. code, it's done. Yeah, I just reject well, yeah. not quite that simple, actually. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, essentially, I'd make that bullet point, make a note, spout it out in a podcast, and then all of a sudden, hang on a second. So if two years from now we all get time code over HDMI, you can... Two years ago, I don't even want to have HDMI anywhere on my set. It shouldn't be a necessity. Two right. years from now, right. okay. so everything's going to be SDI or, or wireless or something. I am very enthusiastic to see the Samurai, the HDSDI version of the Ninja. Yep. So hopefully, uh, again, come NAB, we're going to be speak to a lot of these people and we will roll we, out we these chats and this info uh, over coming EPS post-NAB. If you want to go back and look at a previous... We had uh, the Ninja on after IBC, actually. That's right, there was a little chat, uh, that's right, at, at IBC. Well, that's about it for the news then, I think. We, um, I think so. Only, yeah. The only other thing is uh, more and more grim news keep coming out of Japan on, on uh, products being delayed. Yeah. So very pessimistic now on Canon doing anything at NAB because yeah. literally lenses, just about everything, yeah. uh, is seen to be uh, delayed. We're really terribly sorry about what happened in Japan and is still happening in Japan, I might yeah. add. It's not over. Yeah, but, oh, um, absolutely. But, yeah, I just can't see a huge thing happening with um, yeah with Canon and NAB. But we'll get all of this sorted. Um, but uh, they should still be making it. If they've got something, they should, you know, be making these announcements because obviously there's a lot of gear coming out. Well, look at what Sony's done, okay? I, FS100 is I right think Sony has had a, a shot across shift the bow. in its mentality that I haven't seen out of Canon. Yeah, absolutely. But so, I'm not criticising Canon. I just don't, don't think they're no, going to be just, talking about No, it's complete dead radio science from them. And we know, I was presuming they were making it. But, you know, if, if these cameras are literally being developed and launched and, and announced and potentially soon shipped from Sony, there needs to be 
you know, if they want to, from a marketing point of view, they don't have to. If they'd like to actually, you know, staunch the flow of orders to, towards Sony um, for something that Canon doesn't even make or hasn't even made a murmur about announcing, they should, you know, pull their finger out. Yeah, I guess my thing about cameras is if you can make money with a camera right sure. now, buy it. And yep. if you're waiting for the best camera to come, absolutely. I don't know when we'll see a 5D Mark III, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, but if they're working on a full-frame um, version of, say, the FS100 that has SDI that's three grand or four grand, you know, people who are potentially wanting to... Well, you know, we'll maybe know more even, about Maybe even buying the, a Scarlet. On we'll the next Red Centre, number <laughs> 87. Number 205. We may hear something about that from Canon. Should we jump to the Red Room? Let's jump to the Red Room. Okay, so as we uh, spoke about two eps ago, and then uh, I couldn't follow through with last ep, uh, we have Stu Mashowitz um, joining us. Now, Stu is going to be teaching at FXPHG. Shameless plug. Um, he's going to be doing a course on the Epic on location. And if you want to check out that, um, go to fxphd.com. There's all the information there. That's a new website that uh, the team has set up, and it looks really schmick and cool. Uh, if you want to have a glimpse at what Stu's been shooting, then check out the next episode uh, of FX Guide TV. Which um, I think, Mike, is possibly the best. I mean, I guess it's, 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 you know, it's, it's talking my, my language, I guess. But the F, the, this FX Guide TV app is, I think it's the best one you've ever done, ever. Well, thank you. But, uh, yeah, it depends. I mean, if you're really into stereo Titanic stuff, then Rob Legato was good. And if yeah, you're really that was into absolutely... Look, I don't mean to... High that. frame but rates. for then, me, as I say, that's sort of... That, that's, I think it's just hysterical. It's fun. It's well done. It's just... It's bloody genius. And, uh, obviously, it's uh, a terrific insight into, uh, into this course. Yes. So, anyway, that's uh, the... Uh, it, it's actually got the O-week samples of the courses as well as a rundown on the Epic where we are... Ask and hopefully answer the question, is the Epic the best camera ever made? Uh, and that's uh, episode, I believe, 106 of FX Guide TV, uh, which is out uh, in the week of uh, the 4th to the 10th, which is the week we're in now. Um, so, But more importantly than that, I think a lot of you would just be really interested to hear Stu's opinion on, um, on the Epic, because even though... From my point of view, Stu is first and foremost a director and somebody that's just really about getting the story out and getting around the limitations of tech. Yeah. Stu is a bit known for promoting uh, indie lower-end stuff. Yeah. I would argue not because he's shoving it to the man, but just because he has this duality that he jumps between shooting stuff with a 5D or a 1D Mark IV and also shooting on really big-budget films and doing big work. Yeah. Um, he's... I think he's a very grounded person, I think. You know, very grounded in terms of this not about the gear and it's not about the technology, it's about what you can do with it and creatively, you know, very grounded that way. It's gear for gear's sake and, you know, if there's a better, simpler way of doing it without sort of cheaping out and going complete paper clip and rubber band technology, if there's a better, clever workaround or, you know, if there's a way of looking at a piece of simpler gear and, and get the most out of it, he's, he's the guy. So. But what also is interesting about Stu, and I, I pick up this in the interview, is that the guy is involved at a design level with software development such as Magic Bullet and, and Colorista and stuff. So he has a real uh, sort of perspective from a camera point of view, from a directorial point of view, but also from a product design point of view. And I think that's a really sort of unique kind of combination to be... Mm. Uh, it's a renaissance man. <laughs> 
But no, look, it's really, you know, not everybody has that sort of, you know, has those kind of uh, skill set, you know, to literally know deep colour, but also know to then go and grade something gorgeous with it, you know what I mean? To be able to not just uh, know how something works at the back end, but completely know how to get the image there in the first place. So, yeah, here he is. You are entering the Red Room. Okay, well, I have Stu on the line now from uh, San Fran. How are you, Stu? I am well. How are you? I assume you're up north in California, or are you, or are you down in LA? I am, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm actually in uh, sunny Emeryville in my office here, so you might hear a train rumble by right now. But, yeah. So, we're incredibly uh, delighted to uh, be talking to you because, of course, you're doing the new term at FX PhD, discussing the epic on location. And as everybody knows, because we've done it, uh, we tried to get you on last week, you shot with the Epic with us in New Zealand. So I guess the number one question most people ask is, you know, do you like it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. I think, um, I mean, I, I know that uh, I think Jason feels kind of the same way. There's this odd kind of pressure to r- retain some sort of, you see this with people reviewing the iPad too as well. Like there's this pressure to maintain some kind of objectivity. And if you're not careful, that can actually turn into a kind of sense of trying to achieve like a false balance. Like I liked it so much that I have to like work extra hard to find something terrible about it, but I'm going to let myself off the hook and not do that at all. I, I thoroughly enjoyed shooting with it and I, I, do find it a bit difficult to describe the sensation of you know what it's like to be able to achieve images like that with something that you can hold in one hand i guess that's what i wanted to start with for me i expected that i would be bemoaning the fact that when we were shooting in new zealand we didn't have the promote or the red moat sorry on the back we didn't have um the extra io modules and stuff and then ironically i found that uh, the camera just felt great the size that it was and I'm sort of desperately keen to not fall into the trap of getting all these other accessories and building it out to be a, a big, heavy, clunky thing. Yeah, I felt the same way. I mean, we intentionally set ourselves up with the type of gear that was maybe kind of somewhere in between what you would use with a maybe something like a Red 1 versus, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, the kinds of gear that you'd use with a, an SLR. And uh, it was interesting to see what, which of those tools we gravitated most toward and which wound up being the most useful. Um, it wound up really kind of finding its own sweet spot in terms of, um, you know, a minimal amount of kit that allowed us with our very small crew to achieve some some pretty special stuff. Uh, I, I, I share that feeling of like, it, it was a really fun thing to kind of discover that, you know, in the field with, with the array of, of gear that we had to just kind of settle into what felt right for that particular hardware configuration. So a good example of that is we had an 11 to 16 G-Class. We also had uh, an 8mm and a 12mm. The 4mm, though, is a Master Prime. So there's no doubt in my mind that the Master Prime would eat breakfast of any converted stills lens like the 11 to 16. Before I went to New Zealand, it was like, well, I hope Stu isn't embarrassed that I really like this 11 to 16 because <laughs> he's got the 12mm Master Prime, which, you know, absolutely, no question about it, gorgeous piece of glass. But it doesn't come without its cost in terms of just crewing or or location type work does it no yeah i mean that lens was an example right of one that required rod support and just that little bit 
I mean, you know, it still, you know, added up to something that you would you would easily, you know, lift off a plate and, and hold with one hand while you were adjusting a tripod with the other. But but uh, but even that, I mean, I don't know. It's it is such a beautiful lens, and yet we just kind of found ourselves laughing every time we pulled it out because it, it just felt like it was from a different world. Um, there's obviously nothing nothing at all wrong with. Um, slapping that camera body on the back of that lens but that is what you feel like you're doing you feel like you're adding a camera to a lens instead of the other way around whereas the Duclos was a great example of a general purpose lens that also kind of you know it suited the type of shooting that we were doing it was useful I think at times to have a little bit of a zoom range at the wider end um and uh because we were doing some of our shooting was a bit catch as catch can we didn't necessarily know uh, when our next shot would be at it, um, and uh, but but the just the feeling of that smaller lens on that body, just there was something about it that felt right. I also really liked it when we put the eight R on. Uh, there's a shot that you did of a girl coming past a sort of a hut in the uh, actually it was uh, a town just around the corner from where we were based, and in this particular environment, um, there was a couple of things about that shot I liked. I liked the depth that you got in the shot. I also liked the fact that the camera was fast enough that we could be quite responsive to get that shot. Yeah, that was a great experience. I mean, we'd been shooting together for a bit there and, and um, we realized, you know, that I think the setup that we had done just prior to that was on the little Chinese settlement hut that was nestled in a very hobbit-like way into the kind of cliff face of, of this little area just outside of Arrowtown. And, um, and we realized right away that although that 8 mil lens presents architecture in a really cool way, that nothing beats having some humans come through the shot. And, and in, that, in that setup, we were lucky enough to have some adorable little kids kind of clamber into the shot in a really kind of fun way and explore what was so cool and interesting about this little bit of history. And, and so we were kind of desperate to have that happen again for us when we got to this other little hut and, and, uh, you know, the camera was on a slider and we were not quite ready to go when just the perfect little adorable girl on a bike (laughs) rolled into the frame and, and it became clear that she was going to turn around and come back the other way. So it was kind of like with, with hand signals and whispers and gestures, we were able to get that lens on there and, and uh, get the camera set up and, and, uh, and roll on the shot and get a, a really cool, uh, you know, slider shot of her uh, emerging from behind the, the hut. And when you look at that shot, you'd think that we did, you know, 10 takes and timed it all and stuff. But actually, that was just a one-take wonder because uh, she wasn't part of our crew. And literally, she kept on going. We, ne- we only had one t- uh, bite of that cherry. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting is that uh, the boot-up time of the camera is obviously faster than what we saw before but it's it's actually so fast that i didn't have a problem switching the camera off whereas i sort of think twice before i switch a a red one off uh red one off but uh i mean it really is a significant thing that being able to get a camera up in 10 seconds can make a difference between just feeling like you you know can pick up documentary style and not yeah and that's where it starts right it starts with turning it on and i uh, yeah, I think the camera was probably on already when we when we grabbed the shot of of the girl on the bike. But um, the other thing is just so so that in and of itself, I completely agree is is a huge uh, 
boon. Um, and then the other thing about it was just using the touchscreen to set up the camera. I, I, I think I was sharing horror stories with you of being on sets where, you know, completely adept technical camera crew were just, for whatever reason, having difficulty changing frame rates um, on something like a, a Panavision Genesis camera or uh, I remember on a shoot, I wanted to change frame rates on the Viper, and uh, it just couldn't get it done. It just could not happen. I had to make the decision just to move on and not get that, not get that slow-mo shot. So um, I, I remember kind of furiously uh, getting the uh, – it's just banging through the menus to try to get the frame rate and HDRX settings that I wanted for that, for that shot of the girl on the bike, you know, while she was basically behind the hut, hitting the dead end in the path and turning around and, and knowing that I was going to get it, you know, that I was going to get my uh, exposure and uh, camera settings, shutter settings dialed in and, and knowing that I was going to be where I wanted to be, having really only had two days to familiarize myself with those menu systems. Actually, I should ask you about that because apart from your obvious skill as a director and and sort of track record in terms of independent uh, filmmaking, there's also a side of you which is involved in product design as a sort of architect. And I'm, I'd love your opinion just on the actual U- UI of the uh, camera. Yeah, it was it was a pleasure to use, and and it was uh, it, it was just one of those great things because I think of the way. Uh, I, I just, you know, it was such a fun experience there shooting in New Zealand. But what I loved, I think, most about it was, and I don't know if this was intentional on your part or not, but you really, we, we, in so many ways, I kind of hit the ground running. You know, I think I stepped off the plane, you handed me uh, a cappuccino, you know, as is only appropriate. And then um, within, I think, an hour, we were hanging upside down from wires ziplining down Bob's Peak and uh, with cameras strapped to us. And, and um, so that kind of... Um, I don't know. That that to me is a much better indicator of how uh, of 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 the success of a product design is if you can kind of use it under pressure like that. And and um, it wasn't like we we sat around reading manuals and brushing up before before we went off to start shooting. And and uh, I I just felt like it was it was immediately clear to me. Uh, what I needed to be doing and, and, and where the important settings were. I felt like I, I really liked just the very simple thing of on the touch screen, the readouts that tell you the most important information, like your frame rate, your HDRX settings, how much media you have left, um, the, uh, the shutter angle that you're shooting at, those are both the readouts and the UI to changing those settings. So if you want to change your shutter speed, you touch the indicator that's showing you what your shutter speed is, and then a sort of virtual dial comes up that you adjust. And just that simple thing of the, uh, the sort of grab your stuff and change it is, I think, a post, you know, iPhone, iPad kind of a way of interacting with a, with a camera that, you know, I mean, even when you think about our SLRs, you know, I don't know about you, but... I still, to this day, when I go to change the ISO on my uh, Canon cameras, I always turn the wrong dial first. It's just at this point. <laughs> I do that too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is. Uh, it's clear that even on the day where I think, no, I'm going to outsmart myself and turn the opposite dial than I think it should be, it still somehow manages to be the wrong one first. <laughs> so I was very pleased. Yeah. I was impressed. I, I, I think I think they've they obviously... Uh, have learned a lot, uh, but uh, the touchscreen makes all the difference. And then, of course, 
not to ramble on about this, but like then we were shooting with the car mount and, and all of a sudden we had the, the bomb EVF on there. And I realized, you know, as I'm literally crawling across the hood of our rented uh, off-road truck, like trying to be expedient with setting up a shot, um, that I realized I didn't have the touchscreen and I just, my thumb found the, the thumb wheel and I was adjusting the settings again without having ever really been properly shown how to do it. And it just was effortless. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't give you the manual. Unfortunately, I just didn't seem to find a manual in the box. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, that would have, that would have spoiled all the fun now, wouldn't it? That would have spoiled the fun. So, um, yeah, so I think the, the 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 ergonomics of the camera and the menus we've discussed, but the the big elephant in the room is the dynamic range because this uh, is both. It's the first thing I think that we needed to learn about the camera yeah. because it it isn't immediately obvious, and also I say that in part because. You know, we haven't had this functionality on another camera before, so it's not like you go, okay, well, it's just like the, the you know, 413 camera. It works the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of came to a way of working with the lens and setting your HDRX, which I think is both simple and, uh, and elegant and a, a good kind of rule of thumb. Do you want to go through that? Yeah, I think um, the, the first thing that we learned, I think, after the first day of shooting was that we we didn't want to second guess the the what you know the a pass or kind of baseline exposure that that uh, there was no that you needed to kind of uh, cure yourself of the usual exposed to the left exposed to the right wrestling match that you would find yourself doing with almost any other digital cinema camera and 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 it's the kind of exposure balancing that becomes particularly precarious with something like an SLR. Um, so you've got you've got highlights in the frame that you're interested in protecting. You know you've got HDRX there as kind of a safety net, but you still maybe think to underexpose a little bit. Well, you, you really need to not do that. You can finally expose sort of the sweet spot of your shot consistently from one take to the next, and then dial in the appropriate amount of HDRX, which is going to not just make your life easier on the set in terms of, say, for instance, trying to always get skin tones to a particular, you know, uh, exposure value uh, or whatever. But it's also going to make grading a lot uh, more efficient because you're not going to be rebalancing a bunch of shots that have different exposures because they have different highlight protection needs. Um, And then what I would do is, so I'd set my exposure the way I would want in an ideal world and inevitably, that would mean that some highlights would be falling off the end. And then I would just ride the barrel of the lens uh, through the stops down until I was until my histogram was uh, not slammed up against the right side. So I'd count off one, two, three, and usually somewhere between three, four, and five was like, okay, I'm, I'm getting everything back that I was missing. And that would tell me how many stops of HDRX I wanted. So I was being judicious about... Um, about using only as much HDRX as I needed. Um, and I wasn't, I don't know, I mean, it would be so kind of tempting, I guess, to just kind of set it to a, a, to five stops and kind of set it and forget it. But I, I really felt that it was such an effortless thing. You know, all these controls are right there and uh, that, that it was the right thing to do to use the appropriate setting and not... Um, not just kind of uh, set it to some high amount and 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 leave it and leave it there. 
I think most of the stuff we were shooting was uh, HDR bias because we had exteriors and and uh, therefore we wanted that dynamic range. For example, the snow cave shots and the you know shots going off the water and stuff. Um, yeah. we, I've since been shooting in Sydney and we had a, a situation where we wanted to shoot pretty much uh, everything at 120 frames a second. So we weren't using the HDRX. And yeah. only in a few of those shots did I come across the problem that you can't go both 120 frames and HDRX. Yeah. Um, and obviously there will be occasions for that. But we were still, uh, I think, finding that um, most of the time in the sort of nature of the photography we're doing, which is, you know, you're flying past in a helicopter, no matter how good the pilot is, you can't repeat every shot exactly the same way every time, that we would we would shoot a lot of the shots with HDRX. I expected to shoot maybe half the shots HDRX. I think you and I probably shot... 90% of the shots with HDRX when we were doing this sort of exterior wildlifey kind of stuff. Yeah, there's kind of two ways to think of it, right? One is the what's in the frame right now and can I hold it all or not? And then the other is what we really felt, I think, in the, in the helicopter, which is I don't quite know what's going to be around that next corner. It could be a, a sheer black uh, rocky cliff face or it could be a, a, a gleaming white glacier. And to be able to just come around a corner into a completely alien, you know, exposure situation and just know that you were okay was such a confidence booster. I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a, it's really hard to know just how it's, it's really hard to articulate, I guess, just how kind of what, what kind of hurt puppy syndrome we all have from working with digital cameras for so long that, you know, that, that, it's funny we were shooting in the in the town where uh, allegedly bungee jumping was invented because I was sort of thinking of like you know clipping off to white as being a bit like um, you know uh, dropping off a cliff and being caught by a, a, a cord. It's not that you don't want to stop, right? You do want to stop, but the difference between a gradual stop and an abrupt stop is the difference between <laughs> breaking your neck and not, you know. And <laughs> so it's not that it's not okay to blow out. Uh, because you got to stop somewhere, but it's but stopping gradually is cinema, and stopping abruptly is digital crap. And I just think that I think we're still living in the shadow of. I, I think I still have kind of post traumatic stress disorder from from just being scared of highlights, you know, uh, for the last several years. And it was just such an odd experience to be in that helicopter, come around the corner and see something glorious happen, and see it be completely blown out on the. LCD and just know, you know what, that's okay. I've got it. I think one of the things that I found is that the LCD, while terrific, isn't uh, going to be great for viewing in any circumstance because, you know, obviously on a helicopter you can't uh, be using a, an eyepiece. It wouldn't have been viable in the setup we had with the gyro. Yeah. So the LCD was the only way to go. But I, I couldn't tell you that uh, <laughs> when I was hanging out the side of the helicopter that I could see the LCD really, really clearly. I could see it clearly enough for framing and I knew I was good on focus. But uh, there was a sense of confidence because if I'm doing that on an SLR, for example, um, I really would have been like, okay, I just can't tell if this is working or not. We need to set a video split back to somebody sitting in a seat further in because I'm just nowhere on exposure. I just can't tell where I'm at. And, and I know my exposure was sloppy on some of that stuff, but that's the... That wasn't because I just couldn't be bothered. It was just because I'm, I'm literally hanging outside of a helicopter, <laughs> or, or, or as you were, uh, hanging outside the helicopter, above rocks in the rapids at a, what felt like you know, 30 knots, about a metre off the deck. And quite frankly, <laughs> there were other things to worry about. 
Yeah, I, I exactly, and and I have been you know on helicopter shoots where we were shooting film, and you know I think I I, I had a somewhat treacherous helicopter shoot in the Amazon jungle where we were shooting low over water and 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 that kind of thing. And I I remember the DP I was with maybe changing exposure once or twice throughout the entire day to just correspond to kind of the global sense of like oh we're losing a bit of light you know uh, in the sky I that that was the kind of feeling that you had was like you could you could literally be doing kind of ambient light meter set set it set exposure kind of thing uh, because you just you were protected and that is. That's not when you're hanging out the sides of a helicopter and hoping to get something special because you've caught a boat coming around a corner or something. You know that's well, not uh, laziness. Tell a story of that. Uh, tell a story of that chamois because remember that was something that our pilot had never seen him himself. He'd ever seen before, and he flies that area the whole time. Yeah, that was amazing, right? Because of course, so Alfie, our pilot, is like the coolest cucumber you've ever met to the point where you kind of <laughs> just wonder. Like, would you even know, you know, if, like, the engine lost power? Like, would you even be able to tell based on, like, an inflection in his voice that we were going to need to, like, auto-rotate down into a snowbank? But, like, um, but sure enough, we came around this corner, and he he actually got excited. And his version of excited was like, hey, guys, look at that. You know, (laughs) I thought, wow, that's, whoa, hey, easy there. Easy there, Tiger. Um, But sure enough, this, uh, this, like, feral mountain goat thing was just proudly standing on top of this peak in a way that just, I, I mean, you know, I, I've put a still of it on Flickr since and, and people uh, just, you know, can't believe it's real. And, um, and as I was gleefully snapping away stills, you were in the back trying to get the door of the helicopter open. And that was a classic case of just, you know, look, you know, you're going to get something, you know, you're going to, but um, to I just to be able to throw the camera out the out the door and and get it aimed in the right direction before that poor little guy freaked out and realized that he that a helicopter had taken interest in him uh, it, and just, face uh, planted into the snow. <laughs> he really he really didn't. Though. But I had the camera switched off and the door of the chopper closed. Oh yeah, and I managed to switch it on in the ten seconds it took to come up was about the time it took to open the door and yep. reposition myself. Now, I had the wrong lens on there, obviously, but then that's where the 5K kicked in for me because obviously it's not a particularly interesting shot. It's nice, but it's not, you know, the best shot in the world to be uh, on a 16mm lens that far away from a piece of wildlife, but great for mountains, not so good for the wildlife. But, you know, we really could punch in on that shot. And and I do have, therefore, that shot on the Epic, which I'm sure I would never have got on most other cameras. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. No, it's a great, it's a great kind of, uh, you know, uh, luck meets preparedness kind of example, and, and it, it couldn't have illustrated the camera strengths better. The other thing that I, was, I hadn't shot with before, and I know that it's available on the, um, on the red one, but I, I was pretty pleased with the SSD cards and the way they worked because we were swapping those around in the chopper as well, and uh, I was acting as your, as your bitch, <laughs> your <laughs> camera assistant, I should say, uh, and that, you know, you were just... Uh, you'd come back in and say, I need to swap the magazine and I'd be able to reach over, um, unmount that, put in a new mag and let you get going again pretty darn easily. Yeah, it was very quick. I, you know, uh, yeah. Again, just kind of that seemed like sort of the order of the day. It was just the stuff that for whatever reason has traditionally been a bit of a hassle is no longer and you very quickly... Uh, get used to it, and you can't ever imagine it being any other way. 
<laughs> I, I literally came back and, and they were like, oh, we need to shoot the epic. So, you know, we'll use the red one. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we need some camera porn shots for an episode of FX Guide TV. So we, you know, obviously don't have two epics here at the moment. We have shot with two epics, but not at the moment. So I went, all right, I'll just stick the red one on and I'll film it on the... Uh, on my on my 75 cook and so I, I get the camera out and you know the lens not a problem i go to the back of the camera and i'm fiddling around trying to get the disc drive in the bracket and the bracket on the rods and the plugging that and i'm like for the love of god this is ridiculous and like the camera <laughs> i quite liked about a week ago i was like that's a piece of shit I'm like, it's so bloody hard to work and then you know it's just i mean i just couldn't get over it i was like oh i need to move this camera and i was like all right uh god all right i mean hook on all these wires and it just this mat box and they're gonna have the rods and the and we're putting the 1885 on i gotta put a support and it's just like it was just it became ridiculously hard to do something to the point that i was almost like i mean i just felt myself reaching around going where's the epic oh i'm yeah. filming the epic right right okay. <laughs> i used to love that camera i used to love that red one now it's like god damn it so i've been in the i've been like you know in the morning when you're driving into work i'm like how could i possibly justify taking off the CF card reader on the red one and putting an SSD reader on it because then, mate, well, would I, you know, would I ever get my money back because I'm never going to use it? But I just would so love that SSD on the red one. I mean, um, we we did find that we wanted to have eSATA to transfer the data off those suckers when we got back. Yeah, but it's definitely a mountain was, of stuff. But that was, you know, put in your pocket and go in the chopper. We certainly didn't have any vibration issues or any problems when you were shooting out of the back of the car or anything, did we? No, it was it was very easy, and um, you know, and I think we got kind of hooked on HDRX, so we were chewing through media, you know, twice as fast as we would have otherwise been, maybe, and uh, and and yet it, you know, I think after that particularly long car mount take, I I I just thought, you know, we were chasing you in the car, and I just thought, man, he's probably just sitting there talking to a blinking red light, because I, I just thought for sure we must have run out, and I jumped up onto the hood, and and uh, nope, you still we still had minutes left to go, so it was it was it was it felt like a a, a good amount of media, and uh, and so effortless to change them out, you know. We were we had four. Um SSDs that we were basically using on most shoot days. And I think only on one occasion on that last day when we were doing the car-to-car stuff did we actually go, I'd, I'd like a fifth mag. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that, aren't we? I don't think we ever ran it no, on yeah, that occasion. Yeah, no, it was just the four. Yeah, and I th- there was, I mean, maybe one day where we were kind of out and about with them where we thought, all right, let's be a little, let's not just shoot and shoot and shoot. Let's be a little, let's plan a little bit to, to not uh, uh, run over our limit. But it, it felt like a good amount, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's been great talking to you. Now, of course, you're going to be doing the course at PhD. We've obviously shot a huge amount of that. Um, but even as we speak now, you're grading the material. And, uh, well, still, you have a little bit of experience with color grading. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must admit, though, at the moment, you're not grading off the R3Ds uh, just for various reasons. Um, we are grading off the R3Ds here. Uh, but you happy with the way your pictures are looking? Oh yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, I mean it's uh you know, I sometimes I guess joke that the reason that I ever pull out my 5D to take stills is just so that I have something to play around with in Lightroom and um so you know, when it, whenever I'm shooting, I half of my half of my half of the my brain is just sitting there kind of rubbing its hands together waiting for the opportunity to get it into a uh, some kind of a color correction situation because I just that's where I kind of complete my 
authorship of the image, if you will. So uh, it's been really fun to do it. I've been, uh, yeah, even even not having access to all the original, uh, you know, bit depth and information, it's such a luxurious thing to have that much dynamic range in the frame. Really lets you play around with it. And, you know, there was that first kind of morning that we were out with the helicopter where the lighting maybe wasn't perfect. It provides a fun opportunity to play with trying to kind of pull out uh, some magic out of something that maybe looks a little flat, you know. Uh, it's uh, it's been it's been a great kind of uh, I don't know. It's just it's it's probably my equivalent of the experience you had, um, you know, uh, going back to the red one. For me, it's like going back. I had to go back and correct some SLR footage in the middle of working on the epic shots, and it was like, oh really? Oh man, come on! Like <laughs> just there's there's it, it's such a it's such a nice thing to go into a grading session with enough uh, latitude in front of you to really just you know to not feel like you're trying to fix something, but to feel like you're taking something good and making it great. Now, just to explain, there was a shot, for example, that we shot in a graveyard where uh, we had a little slider move past some roses to reveal gravestones. And um, the thing about this shot is that I wanted you to have a look at it, but we had the HDRX here, and HDRX isn't, at the time of recording, widely available in different apps and stuff. So we did a ProRes version of that and gave that to Stu to have a play with. And to my surprise, even from that ProRes, which, of course, we'd already done an HDRX sort of, uh, you know, sensible kind of pass on, but nevertheless, it wasn't uh, the HDRX source. You did a day-for-night grade, which was interesting. Yeah, I don't know why that occurred to me. It just kind of, as I was looking at the shot and kind of trying to do just a traditional, I had just watched uh, Woody Allen's film, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, and I kind of loved the unapologetically warm color correction that it had. And so I was trying to kind of emulate that uh, on the shot and having plenty of fun with that. But it did occur to me that I had this kind of self-contained environment that maybe wanted to be a little more moody uh, just because of the subject matter. And I had a piece of sky in the shot that was completely held, even though it was a it was you know a a, uh, a flat white uh, overcast sky. Um, it was not overexposed, and uh, so I just kind of did a little day for night pass on it, and it just uh, it actually kind of felt like that was where the shot wanted to be, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think the source material we gave you wasn't even uh, we had no idea you were going to do that, so we wouldn't sort of favored anything that way. Yeah. Um, I think there is obviously a lot of tools still to come. I certainly don't want to paint a picture that everything's solved. In the HDRX uh, world, for example, I think there are actually quite a lot of interesting technical discussions to be had, and we'll try and have those, obviously, in PhD, because, for example, you know, how do you combine this dynamic range and there are issues of tone mapping and stuff. But that being said, even at this early stage where the tools are rudimentary, uh, I haven't seen any imagery that well, certainly we've generated that had a what I'd call tone map ugly look to it. Because I think no. you've actually, I think it was you that published a thing saying I've never seen an HDR tone map picture that I liked. Yeah, no, Something I'm else, I'm so. particularly allergic to that aesthetic. I, I just I think it's a, a very wrong-headed way to go about correcting an image, and yet I, I understand the impulse where it comes from. Um, I think it usually comes from an overreactive preoccupation with trying to uh, not let anything go. You know, I mean, I understand in real estate photography why you want to show both the living room and the view uh, in the same shot. But that's a classic thing of like, well, that's that is the fact of the place, which is that the living room is pretty and it has a nice view. Well, okay, so that is that's that's different than capturing an emotion. That's capturing a fact, and. I, 
as I've written at length about, I'm not really interested in capturing facts. Facts are like, I'm going to use my iPhone to take a picture of my parking place so that I can find my car at the end of a, a long movie. Uh, but, uh, but emotion is something else. And um, I, I personally have a, an allergic emotional reaction to seeing just flat, clipped, blown-out highlights, too. So uh, what was really nice was to just see that even with the simplest settings in HDRX, that it just was exactly what you want and nothing that you don't. It's your shot, but with better highlights. And, uh, and, <laughs> and that's, you know, and, and in a way, again, that isn't trying to make some kind of impossible, perfect blue sky... Um, you know, I mean, we, I think maybe part of this allergy comes from our mutual background in visual effects, right? Because there's always this kind of thing of like, people always think like, oh, the, the blue screen or green screen car interior shot where you're comping a, a moving plate out the back is going to be such a walk in the park. And of course, it never is. And part of what you're battling is two completely different exposure situations that in real life, someone would have had to make an artistic decision about how to handle it. But in the compositing environment, your your client can even force your hand and say, no, I don't want it to be blown out. I want to see Manhattan back there and I want to see my movie star's face. And it just inevitably looks terrible. And, and uh, I was, you know, I guess the, the fear would be that HDRX would be trying to do the impossible and therefore would look like someone's technical exercise. But, uh, but the highlights roll off gracefully. They desaturate, they do all the stuff, that film does and uh i don't even necessarily think it's a question of like trying to emulate a particular film stock or anything i think it's just that kind of when you do things right that's kind of just what happens and uh i think they're doing things right yeah yeah i mean you saw the what i posted as the impossible shot i think you referred to it on uh pro lost as yeah formerly the impossible shot exactly yeah. <laughs> uh the shot formerly known as but um yeah so that in that case we were going from from interior tunnel to exterior and that that wasn't what the hdrx is designed for because it was designed to protect your highlights but yeah again in that shot which is an hdrx shot there's no sense of a tone mapping ridiculously blue sky that looks sort of super fake and comped in it just looks like we can see her in the tunnel and we can see her out of the tunnel and that's what I should be able to do, shouldn't I? I mean, that's certainly my, my wife's kind of approach is non-technical. <laughs> Very bright, but non-technical. She's like, why wouldn't that be what you would do? Yeah. yeah. But honey, you don't understand. Okay, forget it. Um, <laughs> and I, think that's, I think that's where we want to be. We want to be in this place that, uh, you know, your, your uh, husband, uh, if he's non-technical or, or wife or whatever, that somebody that's sort of not in the industry just says, yeah, that looks normal. That looks right. Even though, of course, we are like, panting and pointing and gasping at, you know, what seems to be... Because uh, let's face it, for the non-technical person, a shot coming out of a tunnel doesn't seem particularly difficult. Uh, yeah. But if we've ever tried to pull that shot off personally, uh, in a small form factor that would sit on the front of a car on what is, after all, an SLR car mount... Um, actually, we should just give a shout-out. that Those guys, uh, and this has got nothing to do with Epic, but those guys that, uh, that make that car mount... Yeah. I mean, just some of the... Isn't that just like the nicest kind of case of somebody cares about something and makes something for other people to use. Yeah. It was really just a pleasure to use. It was, you know, I mean, from, from the, from the clear visual indicators that they put to sh- in, into the suction cups to show you if they were ever losing pressure, you'd actually be able to tell from a mile away to just that great little, 
mini uh, Pelican case full of every kind of little bit and bob and connector that you could ever imagine wanting to use with it. It just seemed, yeah, it was just such a, <laughs> it was, it was uh, just a great, great piece of gear. I really uh, kind of want one. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's fun, and I guess that comes back to that thing that we've discussed before, which is that it, we're not just talking about um, ergonomics; it's the scaling of a shoot. And you've said this yourself with uh, even forget SLRs, just you know, using small, uh, high, higher performing what one might call domestic video cameras, which is that there is something really enabling about not having to have a large crew, a large amount of kit, a large amount of you know other stuff because uh it really you know it's it's the multiplier effect of whatever that's a really large camera and you have to step away from the camera jason described the other day he said like i'm used to having this situation where i get the camera in a position and then we want to move it and i have to step away as a director and let four guys come in and take the camera off and one or two of them hold that and somebody else adjusts the tripod and lifts stuff up and moves it all off and then puts it all back together again and then i'm allowed to step back in and look at the lens and he said that is just how we're used to working but quite frankly isn't a good way to work because my train of thought is completely broken by the time i get back to you know okay now it's six inches higher than it was a minute ago yeah, it's it's very true, and I think, like we said, the multiplier effect, right? So now you've got that it takes three people to move the camera instead of one, and so now you've got, uh, uh, you know, a a, cr- a larger crew that requires more food. Now suddenly you start thinking about, oh, well, maybe I need an entire person to handle the food, and now suddenly you're starting to think, you know, this crew is getting large enough that I actually need someone to kind of manage the books. And, all of a sudden, you know, so it's just b- before you know it, you turn around, and there's 30 people standing around because of the difference between uh, an intuitive and a non-intuitive way to m- adjust a tripod, you know. Yeah. Now, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, I don't want to take nothing away from those smaller, cheaper cameras, because there's no doubt about it that the Epic is not a cheap camera. I mean, we shouldn't pretend that it is. It's uh, not a camera most people are going to buy. It's a camera people will probably rent if uh, if they're talking about the Epic as it stands. Obviously, there are cheaper versions coming, but it is not a cheap camera. Yeah, and and it is... It's it's likely to cause even maybe more confusion than the Red One did when it came out. Although it you know was at a lower price point than we're talking about now with the Epic, the there was kind of this odd sense of like maybe there were some people out there contemplating buying it who wouldn't have ordinarily thought to buy a camera at that price point. But I'm not sure if they were all necessarily clear-headedly thinking through the types of support gear and lenses and. Uh, monitoring s- solutions and whatnot that would really be required to be fully, you know, production ready with that with the Red One. Um, it gets even a little more agonizing with the Epic because you actually could, uh, if you if you had no other choice, you could kind of get to work with some of the gear you already have if you're used to working with smaller cameras. So it's, there was a moment when I thought about. Would I should do I want one of these with a with a cannon mount on it? Is that is that it? Is that something that I would ever consider? But uh, I think I think maybe cooler heads will prevail in that area. Well, as somebody that's actually played with it with a cannon mount on, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where do I sign? Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I I do actually think that uh, that's going to be a sweet up. spot, right? I mean, that's going to be a for thing. me personally. Yeah, it's going to be really a sweet spot. I, I just that, that just seems like. 
that's going to be that's going to be one of those you know, I remember this when the when the iPad came out. I mean, I, I remember sort of thinking like, I can I know ten ways I'm going to use this tomorrow, but I I also am looking at this going. I can see that there are ways that I haven't even thought of that I'm going to be using this. And I and, I, and when I think of an Epic with a Canon mount on it, I have that feeling of like I am actually kind of afraid that I don't have enough foresight to really know <laughs> what that means. It, it could be really scary yeah i'm sitting here with quite a lot of just because i was uh getting ready for nab i've got quite a lot of lenses to my left with red stripes around them and uh, i just you know i honestly just can't wait to stick them on um, yeah but look thank you so much for taking time to talk to us we really appreciate um obviously people can find out about the course over at fxphd.com but uh you uh very famously maintain a rather uh insightful uh blog uh, called ProLost, which is literally just ProLost.com, right? That is correct, yes. Thank you very much. And uh, and ProLost doesn't necessarily post every day, or you don't post to ProLost every day, but when there is a post, uh, they're normally uh, quite interesting things. And normally things are just kind of, uh, I guess, uh, in your radar that you end up pondering about. I don't know how you produce a criteria for what goes on ProLost, but uh, <laughs> there's some really good articles on there. Oh, thanks. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, and I, I uh, you know, as maybe as the course proceeds, I'll will uh, put a few more little kind of teasers on there of of what we're up to. But uh, uh, obviously, the real uh, the real meat is going to be found at uh, FX PhD. And uh, also, you're on the Twitters uh, now. It isn't at Stu. It's at Five Tu, which I think that's correct. Can make sure you don't. I have myself typed that too quickly a couple of times. And uh, <laughs> if we could just find this guy that owns at Stu, um, maybe we could uh, make him an offer. But yeah. yeah. Five to you. He seems really serious about holding on to that. He wasn't at first, but now he is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. And it was great fun shooting with you in New Zealand. So uh, I had a blast. Uh, it was. Uh, thanks so much for having me there and here. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Stu. Um, really looking forward to that. Um, as I say, if the FX Guide TV app is uh, any uh, indication, this is going to be a cracker, of course. Um, yeah, we so had a lot of fun. We're, we're putting that together, obviously, now as we speak. Because yeah. a lot of things, like obviously one of the things we're covering in the course is HDRX, and that's um, it's not a moving target. It's just a developing, coming-to-market kind of thing. Like mm. we, we've had, I think I'm on my third major slice of HDRX-ness like the first slice um, was slightly more manual in post-production. The second was more automated. The third uh, is the phase that we're just entering now where we're talking about uh, magic motion and stuff. I've got to say, uh, so the course is awesome, but it's going to be completely uh, rolling out, as it were, over the next three months because if it was all in the can right now... changing, as literally as you're, as you're recording. Yeah, so um, we'll be doing stuff on that now. What I wanted to do is now just take a few minutes to give everyone a rundown on what's happening at NAB, both if you're going, but also keep listening if you're not going because we're going to explain how you can uh, pick up stuff, both behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, live, and uh, also more recorded uh, stuff to do with RC because RC is hitting NAB probably stronger than we've ever done in the past, Jess. Mm, yeah, absolutely. We are... I mean, last year we did the uh, post pit, uh, which was which is fantastic. I really did not know. I mean, hey, yes, last year was just incredibly, you know, 
um, big thing for me because I'd never been. So I didn't know what to expect. And I was thrown into, you know, doing a kind of live thing of a live version of a podcast and, uh, and, uh, and also the, the immensity of the show. But, uh, yes, we are now doing a much bigger uh, on, on, on stage presence at the post pit, not just RC, but obviously FX uh, PhD and FX Guide uh, people and uh, guests. Uh, obviously, Stu talking about Epic. We've got Tyler Ginter, um, who's from the X, I say X fifty fifth uh, camera company, Combat Camera. I mean, let's uh, face trainer. it. Last year was hugely successful. We had a lot of people turn up, and it was massive. as a consequence of the fact that it was so successful last year. And look, it's fun. It's obviously more relaxed. Uh, it's not too serious. But having said that, it's also pretty professional. That we had a ton of people hitting us this year, not just saying, will you come back? And the NAB in particular, desperate for us to come back. But also just a ton of people, uh, sponsor type people that were saying, can we do stuff with you? Can we hook up? Can we sort stuff out? So so let's just run through what's happening. We're going to be at the show. We're going to be outputting FX Guide TV. Um, Some of that's being recorded as early as the weekend before the show where there's some good... Uh, DOP courses being run uh, at the NAB, and we're going to be speaking to Codex and a bunch of other people. Okay, that's happening, FX Guy TV. Once the show actually starts, we'll be there with an Epic on a Steadicam doing stuff and filming. We're filming at night around Vegas if you, if you see us, so if you do, say hi. But we're going to be actually producing some live streaming shows. Now, we were a little nervous about this because we thought, is this technically going to work? But we can actually now relatively confidently say at this stage our plan our plan is to go live yeah now we don't normally go live because we actually think editing is a good thing yeah we actually think editors are valuable people and that just streaming 24 7 (laughs) and we need boring well yeah but quite frankly i'm just not into doing everything 100 i know that there are people that do it and i'm they're very good and i look totally applaud them i just like editing and i like cutting stuff down and making it tight but as an extra option we're going to go. We're yeah, go. we are going to go live. Thanks to our friends of the RC, uh, TerraDeck, are uh, going to help us uh, hook up a stream, uh, which obviously will be um, uh, at FX Guide. I guess fxguide.com will have the stream there to be able to receive it. Well, the first stream won't be, because what we're doing is on the, tu- on the Monday... That's true. ...we're going to turn up at TerraDeck's booth and do a little mini... Uh, Red Centre RC podcast. Now, that one will be going out live on the... What time is that? That is... Uh, mon- mon- that's, that's Monday Monday to 4.30... Monday 4 to 4.30 uh, Eastern Time. Uh, so we'll be at the uh, Terry Deck booth where they've set up their own sort of mini studio there. Right. And also... Regardless of this session, they are actually also broadcasting all week, and uh, there's a link to the show notes uh, in the show notes to their schedule, and also obviously at also at Terry. If you go to terry.com.com, there's a link there. But we, but we are going to do a sort of, I guess, a, a, a sort of special edition RC kind of, uh, which obviously links to uh, Insider at FX Guide. Yeah, because clearly some of you aren't in the right time zone to listen to something live. We're going to record that. Short. It'll be like a three-quarter of an hour special Red, uh, Red Centre RC. We can record that and make it available on the website for download later. So if you are not a member of FX Guide Insider, you can tune in, but that may require you to get up in the middle of the night, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, or, alternatively, uh, if you are a member of Insider, you can just download that and uh, listen to your heart's content. That's all 
Vegas Monday time. Monday. But the yep. main event is Tuesday Vegas time because starting at 1.30 in the afternoon, we're going to be going on stage in the uh, post pit, which is at the very, very end of the South Hall with all these friends of ours, basically. So Stu, Tyler, just a bunch of people. And we're going to get... a ton more. Let me yeah, we've got people coming be. over from, from Gen Arts. We've got people coming from various places with cool bits of kit to discuss. And we're going to be yep. doing our sort of picks of the show, basically, like what was cool... As a bit of a wrap-up, absolutely. But obviously there's a lot of things we don't know is going to be on there yet until we've sort of worked the show. And obviously at the show launch, that's when there's a lot of announcements come out that I know well, I know there's a lot of stuff that we can't mention yet that's coming. But yes. also there's stuff I don't, we don't know about that, that's coming. And we will try and drag those people to stage or to, the, to record, uh, go to their booths and record. So uh, we were definitely going to try and get as much uh, cool gear up on stage as we can. Uh, and make it worthwhile um, seeing it visually. Uh, as, uh, obviously, it's not just for the people that are there in person as well. Well, the streaming from the booth is going to be video and audio, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're wondering right. what Jason looks like and <laughs> when he's recording... Sadly, you will be, you will be uh, all be revealed. But again, uh, that will be edited up as an audio on the uh, Red Centre. So if you're just a regular Red Centre listener and you're sitting in London somewhere and you go, well, I don't want to get in the bloody middle of the night to listen to you guys. Do yeah, you will still thing. then get the audio version of that. Um, and Cut you down. Can, and you can Tightness. go and you can go join Improved. up to Insider and see the sort of uh, the special edition version as well, I guess. There you go. So, so that's all happening on the Tuesday. And then uh, we have some other stuff coming out um, on Wednesday. But the only uh, other thing to flag is if you are a member of FX Insider or a member of FX PhD and you're in Vegas, please come to our knockdown, kick, brawling, huge, <laughs> mega drinks function. <laughs> brawling. Um, which is uh, on at about 5 or 5.30 on, uh, after the post pit. So we're going to go for the post pit. We're going to go up... Um, swap our stuff out and then uh, hit the party and that's a great place for basically connecting up with people yep. um, swapping stories so if you want details on that uh, function on the Tuesday night we'll be sending you out emails if you haven't already got them to members of FX Guide Insider and uh, PhD and we'd love to see you there and drinks are on us we've got a huge open bar thanks to our terrific sponsors um, we have a lot of really good sponsors that have kicked in and are joining us for that party and Jace, we're giving away a ton of stuff. I mean, like entire copies of major suites of big on good old-fashioned professional kit. Excellent. I mean, like, I'm talking like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff that people have been giving us to now give away. Yes, I think last time the prize of the day was uh, the iPad, which at that stage had just been launched and was like, you know, like like uh, unobtainium. Yes. Uh, Well, we we are (laughs) topping that three times over this time. (laughs) Seriously, like I was like, well, can't we keep it? <laughs> so, cool. yeah, so all of that uh, will be at uh, the uh, Tuesday night event. And, of course, um, you'll see us just hanging around and doing stuff at the show. And if you, uh, you know, are a member or a listener, please come up and say hello. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Though I just should say at this point, I think this is really, really funny. Like when I say that everyone has been incredibly keen for us to come and do stuff, actually everyone's been incredibly keen for Jason to come and do stuff. I feel like a bit of a hanger off. Like every invitation we've had to talk at any booth has been, we'd really like Jason really? to come. And Jason's like, well, I'll, I'll be with Mike. Oh, yeah, no, he can come too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm used to being um, Mike, Mike. No, but seriously. No, they just, people just presume that you're just, you know, no, they, way they, too busy no, for that. Fine. And I've so, got plenty I'm of time. I'm totally cool with it, man. It's good on you. <laughs> seriously, that's great. 
<laughs> you do great work. I, I would have you on. A, I okay, think we do. Okay, moving on, moving on. Okay, so also just another another aside to uh, sort of planning what you're going to do at NEB if you're attending. Um, Dan Dumachel, sorry, Dan, for if I butchered your name there, but uh, better known, more involved with uh, Finna Knows Best or FinnaKnowsBest.com. Last year uh, did a fantastic NAB, I guess his uh, red map or I guess his NAB map, and he's uh, done it again this year, which is really, I guess, a uh, I guess uh, a really good guide to the hotspots if you're um, you know red and filmmaker and how to avoid some of more some of the uh, not so interesting booths. But it's a great sort of uh, map of hotspots of where to attend. You know, like. Um, Obviously, Teradek and FX Guide and the Post Pits and, and where Red is and, um, you know, Adobe and, and, and Avid and all that sort of stuff. So there's uh, – it's a terrific uh, – it's a PDF. Obviously, you can – uh, there's links in the show notes, of course, and plus you can go to com and uh, download it for there. But from there. But thank you, Dan, for, for doing it again. That's terrific. Really appreciate it. There's a lot of work goes into this. Uh, it's a really good resource to have in your back pocket or download the PDF and put it in your iPhone or your iPad and walk around with it. So that's about it for this week. Uh, thanks, Stu, uh, for being on the show. Thanks to you guys for listening. We really appreciate um, – obviously, Red Center has – we said – you know, a couple of times that it's become successful has become absurdly successful. So we thank you guys for it. Um, yes. We thank don't have the- any limits on the number of people that can come to the post pit. It's uh, set up to have a big crowd. Like yeah. last year, that was standing room only. If you can, please overflow as much as you can in the other surrounding stands and uh, get in their way. We the other stands last year. <laughs> but uh, the party is invite only because uh, we have fire marshal rules on how many people can come in yeah. and and uh, we've got a big uh, kind of bar thing going on it's mm. going to yeah. bankrupt me <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I want to thank all our sponsors and uh, people that are helping it's going to be a big week um, hopefully you guys will uh, be able to join us if not we'll certainly try and get you the best of the best uh, here on the RC yes obviously Jason, we'll endeavour to make it as engaging for people who aren't coming as uh, you know and not just a sort of a love fest thing for those who do so obviously I'm trying to make it balanced so that you know if you're listening, listening at home and you can't go as I have done many a year and listen to Mike go and being sort of just arrogant just want to just punch you um, <laughs> it's uh, so you know obviously we're trying to make it make it um, be uh, worthwhile if you can't attend well, until next time, when we will be coming to you live from Las Vegas. We have just one last thing. We had a complaint that we stopped doing the Twitter shout-out. <laughs> a comment. Well, all right. Uh, anyway. Hey, where's the Twitter shout-outs gone? Yes, obviously, the last couple of episodes have been a little bit crazy, uh, and we've been a little bit sort of drifting away from format. But, yes, in a return to that, we'll do a shit a twat out. Shit a twat out. A shit a twat out. And this, uh, this week, we're going to go for um, Light Iron. Uh, that is uh, twitter.com light underscore iron who are a uh, Hollywood um, post facility yeah so Light Iron's great Michael Conde's there's a great guy Michael and the guys were central in helping us with the impossible shot that we did uh, the HRX impossible shot getting that graded uh, they're, they're basically really good at work for many of you will know them because Michael spoke at the Red event last year when he ran through um, uh, his theories on uh, posts and how things were set up but they're really bright guys they really get it and uh, obviously they're very relevant to a data centric workflow so uh, they're good people to follow yeah absolutely great stuff uh, that, uh, also lightiron.com for their website well until next time as I say we're coming live from uh, Vegas uh, to keel it up and ready to go <laughs> we'll see you then see you. thanks for listening Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, 
FX Guide LLC.